concerns about technology and employment are almost as old as recorded history. Queen, the first one, tried to protect hand knitters by refusing to authorize a machine that would have increased production of stockings. Since then, creative destruction, the process by which industries and businesses rise, are displaced by new challengers, and fall, has been a hallmark of economic advancement. By increasing labor productivity, technology has raised living standards to heights undreamt of by our forebears. My mom was one of the last telephone operators replaced in the late 1950s by automatic switching machines. She went on to work in an electronics factory and then became an accountant, making far more than she ever could have as an operator. Now, telephone companies are being transformed into digital media platforms and radically reducing and transforming their workforces. Since 1980, 15.8 million net new jobs were created by the introduction of the personal computer, but 3.5 million jobs were lost. The price of economic investment for everyone is a fluid and dynamic economy that creates economic pain, suffering, and displacement along the way. But will that pattern continue to hold? As the 21st century has progressed, a new kid has emerged on the economic block. It's called artificial intelligence, and it means the development of computers capable of independently reading and understanding data, and then making decisions based on that understanding. Massive increases in computing power, which until recently have been doubling every two years for decades, combined with new internet communications technology is revolutionizing work and automating jobs once done exclusively by people. The economic dynamics of Elizabethan England are still with us. They've just been digitized, miniaturized, and increased to the speed of light. We are once again asking ourselves, what does the future of work look like in a world remade by technology? My guest today on Hardly Working is Amy Webb, a quantitative futurist, a professor at the NYU Stern School of Business, and CEO of the Future Today Institute. Last year, she published The Big Nine, How the Tech Titans and Their Thinking Machines Could Warp Humanity where she offers insights into how AI and the big tech firms developing it may shape our future. Amy Webb, thank you for joining us today on Hardly Working. Thanks for having me. Really great to have you. We're here to talk mostly about your book, The Big Nine, how the tech titans and their thinking machines could warp humanity. You're a futurist, and I'm very intrigued by that because it sounds fascinating, but I don't know exactly what it is, and I I suspect some of our listeners won't know either. But why don't you talk a little bit about what a futurist is and then how you do your work? Sure. So a futurist is sort of contrary to what a lot of people might think. Somebody who uses signals and data and evidence from the present to understand change as it's happening for the purpose of understanding plausible outcomes, plausible next-order outcomes. So most of our job is really about reducing uncertainty over a long period of time. It is not making predictions. And that's an important distinction because especially right now, there's a lot of speculation around what a post-COVID world could look like, the United States' role on a global stage, you know, the future of biotech, biointerfaces, artificial intelligence, healthcare, you know, geoeconomics, and, and so forth and so on. The truth is that there are so many external variables over which no one entity has control that there is no way to accurately predict you know, the future. And I guess you would have to be omniscient, and then you would also have to have 
some kind of quantum computer at your fingertips that would continuously crunch every single variable. <laughs> like it's, you know, it's like not the math doesn't work out. So really our job is about creating a state of readiness. And I do that. I rely very heavily on quantitative data as well as qualitative data. But there are different schools of thought on this and in different ways of doing it. Foresight, as it's known, goes back over a hundred years. And in the, the most recent era, there I think there's a bit more of an emphasis on using data. Okay, so the immediate question we're talking about today is artificial intelligence. Clearly, there are a lot of unknowns there, a lot of unknowns, a lot of unknown unknowns, and then the interactions that you were just talking about between how that technology will affect and be affected by human actions as it's being developed and and being used. You start out the book grappling with this question of human consciousness and what we mean by the words mind and think. Why is that important and how does it help guide the rest of the book and your thinking through this issue? That's a terrific question. Most futurists will tell you that there is no use in trying to understand the future without first looking at the past. So if we want to understand the future of artificial intelligence, we need to not just sort of prognosticate or even consider what's happening today. We need to go back as far as possible to understand the foundations of what is now the third era of computing. The question is just how far back do you go? Because you could certainly go back to the 50s to a workshop that happened over the summer at Dartmouth where preeminent computer scientists at the time and neurologists and psychologists, mathematicians, logicians got together to imagine a future in which a computer might someday think and think like a human does. But that's not actually the first time that question had been asked. In fact, the same question had been asked during World War II when the United States was trying to beat Nazi encryption. And Alan Turing during that time asked similar questions. What might the future be like if machines might someday think? And in fact, if they were doing that, how would we know, right? That's the the Turing test. And you would have to go back even further before that to the 20s, to the World's Fair, when there were a number of robotics and robots displayed that had very humanistic characteristics. There was a robot the 1939 World's Fair that looked a lot like the Tin Man from The Wizard of Oz, and it was called the Westinghouse Moto Man, that not only talked in response to humans' questions, a human question, but also smoked cigarettes, which was like super exciting for everybody at the time. It did. It would inhale and then puff smoke back out. Did the tobacco industry help finance the development of that's the a, That's a very good question. Or? You know, they should have, right? That was a good <laughs> opportunity. You know, and, and you could even go back further than that to Ada Lovelace as she was working with Charles Babbage on the analytic machine, which was an early, early, early computer, which at that point just did tabulations. However, she posited in a number of academic writings, you know, what if this tabulation machine at some point does more than calculation? You know, what happens if it someday might compose songs and music the way that a human might? You know, and that's in the 1800s, at a time before there was, you know, electricity everywhere, and at a time before we drove cars. But you would have to go back even further than that to the very first animatronic toys and devices, to a duck that was a robot, but certainly quacked and, and, you know, made sounds like a duck, to a little tiny monk that would 
walk up and seemingly walk up and down a dinner table to entertain guests during a time in which the church was effectively the, the, you know, the ruler. And these questions that we continue to ask today are hardly original. So as long as we've had machines, and as long as those machines have become more and more anthropomorphized to either look more like humans or, or look and sound more like animals, we have continued to ask that question. And as we've evaluated that question over the years, which is what would the future look like in which we created a, a walking, talking, realistic computer that seemed just like us, there was a parallel track where we also started to ask questions like, well, wait a minute, how does our own mind work? Because even in the year 2020, there's very little that we know. And therefore, if you want to have a conversation about artificial intelligence in a meaningful way, it's not enough to say that we've been modeling modern AI using what we know of the human brain. You also have to ask the question, well, what exactly do we know of the human brain? And how has that influenced the development of AI? So we have this evidently this innate human desire both to understand ourselves and how we work, but then also to try to create things that work like us, that consider the world around them, that think like us to the extent that we can we can make that happen. Where do you think artificial intelligence, where do you think that stands right now in terms of reaching that goal of an artificial intelligence that maps roughly to human intelligence? So I think that's a pretty good question to ask. It's certainly a question that, that a lot of people are wondering about. And again, you know, as a futurist, my favorite answer to a lot of questions I get is, what would it take for X to be Y? So what would it take for an AI system to map more concretely to the, to the cognitive, you know, or the compute power of a human brain? Well, for one thing, we would have to know a whole lot more about the human brain. You know, we, we still don't know very much. We can assess the, the compute power that we're capable of biologically, and we can have some understanding of what our biological limitations are if no other technologies are introduced, like, you know, implantables or synthetic biology or genomic editing. And you can sort of do the math on, even if Moore's law doesn't hold, what are the outer reaches of the computational power of an AI system? So you can, you can sort of roughly do that and you can kind of sort of compare apples to apples, kind of. But I think the exercise is really not the right one for us to pursue because making an assumption that AI will someday, that artificial intelligence will someday mimic or match human intelligence or even that AI is an artificial form of HI, human intelligence, I think is, is sort of incorrect. And that's because, first of all, you have to think about how AI evolves. If there are evolutionary algorithms, you know, and data and no constraints or parameters, and we allow AI systems to evolve and to learn the way that we would, again, it's an evolution of machine intelligence with a foundational layer of what humans built and created. And it happens in a more accelerated way. So I just, it, to me, artificial intelligence is, is fine. I think it would be more accurate to call it, you know, alien intelligence because it, it is really alien to, to us. You know, it's, it's different. As I, you know, I read your book, it's, there's this idea that is contained in there that 
A, sometimes we don't really understand how artificial intelligence is doing what it's doing and that it seems to do what it does differently than the way a human being does it. So that, that gets your alien intelligence question. I guess just to press this a little bit further, I mean, when I look at documents about artificial intelligence, reports on artificial intelligence, I see sort of systems that are capable of doing narrow tasks very well, very quickly, much faster, actually, than human beings can do them, but not really capable of integrating a lot of knowledge across different domains. Do you think that's right, or am I missing something there? Yeah, I mean, there's like a generally accepted deviation with regard to AI systems. So there's artificial narrow intelligence, which is a machine doing a skill equal to or slightly better than a human could in a very narrowly defined space. It's also known as weak artificial intelligence or strong artificial intelligence, which is also known as artificial general intelligence, which is a way of categorizing a system that can do many more tasks than simply performing a narrow task. Now, the challenge, of course, is it's not like there are any global norms and standards. So there's no singular checklist to denote when AGI criteria have been met and we can officially call a system artificial general intelligence. I would say that we have seen plenty of published, verified experiments and academic papers now from the DeepMind team showing examples of multitask learning, hierarchical learning, you know, learning that doesn't require a human, evolutionary algorithms, all, all of these things that would suggest that a system is completing more than one narrow task on its own. And in fact, the most recent iteration of AlphaGo, which is capable of learning multiple games at once, not just Go, for example, and has done that using strategy and again, without a human in the loop, would be an early example of AGI. We are on a, you know, at least a seven decade trajectory that may or may not be accelerated by the coronavirus. We are going to see multiple stages. I think that the place where people get sort of confused is when they conflate an AGI with, you know, sort of like a, a walking, talking robot, like a Terminator, you know, or something that has humanistic characteristics like a super intelligent Alexa, for example. We have to be very careful and separate the code from the container. You know, digital assistants, uh, walking, talking robots, smart Bluetooth speakers, these are containers for code. They are not themselves AI. So we're advancing, that we're somewhere along a continuum, advancing toward an artificial general intelligence of some kind. We don't really know what that will look like or how it will operate. And there seems to be a lot of debate as to whether that is, we periodically go through these, these winters of artificial intelligence where things look really promising and then they kind of trail off and then they rebound 10, 15 years later and people make a breakthrough. But where would you put us in that cycle? Are we continuing to accelerate here? Are we hitting some constraints that are going to limit development, just from a technical standpoint, not, not a social standpoint, just from a technical standpoint, are we hitting constraints? Are we resolving problems that are going to allow us to move forward? Right. So again, this is where it's useful to think about artificial intelligence, not as a singular technology, but rather a constellation of technologies. 
Marvin Minsky and John McCarthy, who coined the term artificial intelligence in 56 at this Dartmouth meeting, themselves later said, you know, AI is kind of like this meaningless term, uh, because as soon as something has some degree of automation, even if it's very simple, we no longer think about that as artificial Mm -hmm. intelligence. It's just, you know, we're using a calculator. So to that extent, I would just say within AI, you know, there are absolutely developments that are catalyzed by the coronavirus. And you know, areas like computer vision and machine reading comprehension, using AI in very specific neural ways to help speed scientific discovery. This is, again, where evolutionary algorithms come in. You know, if you have, if we're trying to figure out which of these 70 antivirals have the greatest likelihood, given the factors that we know, of having the greatest efficacy to inoculate, you know, the population or to treat the population If you try to run a normal trial and you have to go through lots and lots and lots of people and, you know, the normal process would take way too long. If, however, you have the right comprehensive set of factors and the right evolutionary algorithms, you know, you could start running trials at warp speed, asking the AI system to make, you know, changes you know, as needed. I mean, it's, it's this, in this case, we're talking about like an AI system replacing a graduate student's work in a, in a lab. That kind of thing we're going to see a lot of increased investment and attention in because it's the kind of thing in a narrow way, you know, that could potentially get us closer to some answers that we've been seeking. In terms of automation in transportation, I don't think that this coronavirus leads to a faster adoption of fully autonomous vehicles on the road. However, three months ago, we built a model at the Future Today Institute seeking to understand the plausible futures of land and air-based drones. And if it was, so we built these in January. So if it was the case that we had lingering shutdowns and potentially a reduction in the workforce, would that potentially lead to faster adoption of air-based drone delivery for medication, for groceries, for, you know, payloads that weren't super, super heavy, and also land-based drones? And the accelerants for that were not just urgency because of the virus, but also potentially there would be nobody outside and our, our grid would be much less congested than it is. And, you know, lo and behold, three months later, that is exactly what we're starting to see happen. So my, you know, our research would indicate that there is going to be an accelerated push into AI as it has to do with sense and avoid, computer vision, geospatial mapping, you know, spatial computing, and, and all the rest of it. So it's a very, very long answer, but it's, I wanted to provide some context and detail because sometimes people talk about AI in this sort of monolithic way. And it's important to understand that AI is you know, many things. Yeah, this is really helpful because it, what it points to for me is that AI is increasingly organic, that it is, and you use this this word, evolutionary algorithms, which I, I think means that they, you know, have a, a capacity for adapting to their environment, uh, to the information that they're receiving and making changes on their own without much in the way of human direction. Is that right? Yeah. And, you know, again, I don't think we're, this is not like we're not talking about weird science where you've got a couple of people sitting at a computer ordering a, 
I might be making an 80s reference that like three people understand. No, I got, I got that reference. Yes. Yeah, so it's not, I don't think it's like that as much as, you know, the, the type of lab work, you know, when you are doing your typical sort of wet bench lab work, you've got some students, they have to run the same tests over and over and over again. It's physically running tests, slightly tweaking things, you know, and it just takes a very long time. If you could automate the work of that lab, not to like, obviate the jobs of lab assistants, but if you could obviate that work that a graduate student does and not only make the process more efficient, but make it a thousand times faster (laughs) and to have, if the parameter is, you know, find an answer that meets these criteria, then yeah, you know, and and let the system solve the problems on its own. And that kind of leads me into what I wanted the second part of our conversation to be about which is you you spend a lot of time developing these questions around values within AI that these systems kind of reflect the assumptions of the people who build them that we're kind of laying down a matrix here if I understood it's going to form the basis for a lot of the values that kind of guide the evolution of the system over time I think I remember reading that you kind of analogize this to the Ten Commandments, that the Hebrew Scriptures handed down the Ten Commandments, and then we've adapted them over time to suit current circumstances. And then you kind of bring up this idea of tribes, which is where I really want us to go now. There are these different AI tribes. Now, tribe is, when you think of that word, you're generally thinking of, in other contexts, you know, sort of study of ancient and somewhat primitive civilizations. But in this sense, we're using it in conjunction with a cutting-edge technology. So explain the AI tribes concept and who are the AI tribes. Right. So, you know, the way I think to understand this is to always, you know, every time you're thinking about a technology, you still have to sort of think about humans' relationship or humans' place with regard to that. When we're talking about artificial intelligence, we have to bear in mind that humans are still very social creatures, and we tend to gather with those who are, you know, who share our ideas and our instincts and our beliefs and our values. It's highly, highly unusual to to find a tight knit group of people who are completely on opposing political ends of the spectrum, or you know, have totally different ideas about things. So. The term tribe is really used to connote a like-minded group of individuals who share the same values and in some ways not only echo what each other believes, but then strengthens those beliefs. And sometimes it's, it's not even apparent that that's what's happening. The example that I gave is a house where a bunch of super famous comedians lived in the 70s. And and you know, probably a lot of people listening have been in a situation like this because there's parallels to Silicon Valley and to the Hill. You know, you, you get a group of people living together, sort of working together, spinning ideas off of each other. And in the process of doing that, you know, the values are further entrenched. Now, that's true of artificial intelligence. So a lot of the people who work in the field they are going to the same schools. They are basically working at the same companies, even with a prolific startup ecosystem. You know, most people can trace their lineages back to individual professors or particular schools. And the challenge with that is that it's a very siloed ecosystem. And so again, you have 
this sort of shared set of values that makes perfect sense within that group, but may unintentionally exclude those people's beliefs who are not in that group. And you may leap to the conclusion that I'm basically talking about white men versus women and people of color, and that's actually not what I'm talking about. So if you look at the entire group, you know, it over-indexes a little bit, you know, a little bit to the left. They tend to share a lot of the same characteristics. And the problem, of course, is when you're training systems, you have to select data, you have to train algorithms, you have to make a whole bunch of decisions. And the decisions that are being made are by people who essentially share, you know, a, a relatively narrow set of values, you know, relative to the rest of the world. Okay, so we've got these tribes, and you seem to divide them, not, like you said, not so much along race or gender or, you know, some of the ways that we typically think of uh, when we talk about diversity. But you do seem to draw a distinction between the American tribe and the Asian tribe, and specifically the Chinese tribe, that's working on artificial intelligence. Is that right? Did I, did I capture that? That's right. And here we're talking about sort of the free market economy and the way that AI's developmental track has been continuing to blossom. And the Chinese model, which is AI being developed by you know, publicly traded companies, companies that might seem as though they are separate from the government, but because they are domiciled in China, must answer to the CCP. And this is not anecdotal. This is evidence-based. I mean, there are plenty of examples of new policies from the CCP and how those policies have had to interact with some of the top companies who are working in the AI ecosystem. You know, they are part and parcel of some of the digital programs that are being exported. They're certainly part of the hardware that's being exported and used in other countries. And, you know, Xi Jinping has made no secret of the CCP's desire for cyber sovereignty, Chinese cyber sovereignty, and, you know, creating a new world order, you know, one to some extent built on AI with, with China at the helm. That was all true before the coronavirus emerged. So AI had been on these two developmental tracks. There was a sort of third tangent, third track, a little bit less influential, and that would be the European model, where they have been very active in regulation, creating regulation, anticipating ways in which AI might be used. Although, you know, they've been a little bit less successful in deploying those ideas worldwide. So you... You have principally this American kind of tribe and the Chinese tribe that have these kind of different imperatives, different approaches, and some of that is rooted in the way we organize our politics and the and the two different systems. One bent more toward wanting you know the use of AI for social control, and that's been a big issue. And then in the U.S., the tribal problem is kind of different in the U.S. context, right? So we've got, we've got, you mentioned this at the beginning, you know, we, we got these, got people working in the industry that have largely gone to the same institutions, gotten the same kinds of education, the same left-of-center political values. One of the arguments that you bring up or needs, I think, for change that you bring up in the book 
is about broadening the kind of education that we give our computer scientists, basically, from a narrow kind of just technology focus to a trying to bring in other disciplines into that into that education. That's a key interest of mine because I do think that it's not just true in our elite computer science programs. I think it's true across the culture, across the society, that we value technical education above non-technical education. But I'd like to hear you talk about that a little bit. What's the problem with the way that we're educating our coders, our computer scientists, and what kinds of things would you like to see change? Right. So this is, uh, I think, as you probably know, because you and I have talked over email a bunch, a little bit of a passion of mine as well. You know, the challenge is that a lot of our curriculum, especially in the United States, is a response to, it's reactive to the past and the present versus being responsive to the future. And I think this crazy laser focus on STEM education over the past decade and much more so in the past maybe five or four or five years, is really a response to the challenges people creating those curricula and teaching are feeling. You know, it, it represents their own insecurities, you know, when it comes to tech. Now, if you, and I, listen, I've got a nine-year-old. My nine-year-old has had absolutely no problem signing on to Zoom and taking her distance learning classes, Printing stuff out, she's ha- she's needed like next to no parental oversight, and yet I'm watching a lot of parents because all the kids have to sign on at the same time. You know, I've watched a lot of parents really struggle, you know, struggle to get their kids online, struggling to understand because they've insisted on doing everything themselves, and the way that that activity has trickled up to the leaders of the school is, you know, the kids just can't handle Zoom, they just can't handle distant learning. And that's not true. It's the parents who are having the problem. And I relate this because, you know, a kid who is between the ages of, you know, let's say two and 15 today does not know a world without advanced technologies. So, So they do not have the same learning needs, or I should say learning gaps, as somebody who's in their 30s through, you know, on up. So if that's the case, I'm watching around the country teaching kids how to code or even continuing education courses trying to teach adults how to code using technologies and tools that are going to be outdated by the time they need to use them for real. What makes a lot more sense is, again, if we are thinking about the farther future and the things that ultimately, the skills that will be useful throughout a person's life, those skills are critical thinking, logic, reasoning, you know, discourse, creative writing, critical reasoning and thinking, world literature, world religion, stuff like that, you know, and that is, that is the core of a liberal arts degree. So I realize how insane that sounds, right? That here we are talking about AI and I'm saying the kids who are going to do the best going forward are the kids that have a a very rigorous liberal, liberal arts education. But the reason that I say that is because a lot of what is being taught is this sort of catch up to where everybody feels like they should be. Now, things are different in China. In China, they have a totally different approach to education and to learning. I'm not saying one is better than the other, but they have introduced, they've got a K through 12 nationalized AI curriculum that is being taught 
and the fundamentals are being learned at a very early age. We are in a situation in the United States where here we are two months into a virus and I can rattle off several school systems, at least around the greater Virginia, Maryland, Washington, D.C. area that are, if, if they get one synchronous learning experience hour a week, they're, they're doing well. I mean, our public, you know, our public schools are failing the most simple task right now. My son's in Fairfax County Schools, and it's just been a challenging and disappointing experience to, to watch the school district struggle with this transition to distance learning. You know, this is in one of the highest tech areas of the country, not the most, mm-hmm. obviously, but, you know, a place with a lot of technology firms and a lot of emphasis placed on technology learning. And it's just kind of, I think it's, it's been a flop as far as I can judge from my son's experience. Speaking of anecdotes, about 18 months ago or so, I, I hired a young man to come over and help me move some furniture off of Craigslist. I didn't know who he was. So he came over. He was on break from school. We started chatting. I asked him what he was majoring in. And he was going to a prominent Northeastern liberal arts institution. And he said, well, I'm majoring in computer science and I'm minoring in philosophy. And I said, well, that's really an interesting combination. You know, like, why? And he said, well, if I had it my own way, I would major just in philosophy because I just love it so much. But my parents won't pay for a philosophy degree. They'll only pay for the computer science. And to me, what that said is, you know, the kids that are in college right now are coming up in the wake of the Great Recession. I think there's a tremendous amount of anxiety among parents about making sure their kids are employable in a, in a technologically driven economy. And so we're forcing, we're pushing a lot of people into the stuff that they don't, if they have the drivers, they, they wouldn't probably do it. They probably do something else. And I think that accounts for the attrition that we see in the STEM occupations, people getting out after a few years. So, so there's that whole issue, but there's also this issue of like what it is that people know when they start coding. They either just know the coding or they know the coding, and then they have some sense of like where this thing that they're working on fits into the rest of society and fits into history and culture. And that's what I took from your book, is that that's what's really missing. Yeah, I think that's right. Part of what's missing is a big enough and a broad enough representation in the foundational pieces of artificial intelligence. And if only universities... Now, again, we're sort of in this other situation where I think this is an opportunity for universities to update what they're teaching and their curricula and their course requirements. I sit on an accreditation council, so I'm very familiar with the requirements of ours. There's there's a lot of tricky components to this, but universities that are teaching the disciplines are part of the AI ecosystem should make more room and encourage courses like philosophy or a minor in philosophy, you know, or other critical thinking skill sets. Now, some do, and there are, there are more and more requirements for, you know, taking a course on ethics and diversity. But again, if you just have to take one class to check it off of a list, you're not going to create a lot of change. 
The real reason to, to do this isn't just about inclusivity and making sure that our systems that make decisions that we have hoped will start thinking like us, think like all of us versus just a few of us. That's not the only reason. The other reason is because, you know, we are entering several new scientific and technological disciplines that are going to require people with hybrid skills. So I'll give you an example. There's something called synthetic biology. Synthetic biology means biology that doesn't creating organisms that don't currently exist in nature. So I'm not talking about inventing a glow-in-the-dark lizard, although that technically would be part of it. But rather, can we create a virus? I realize this is terrifying to hear this at this point, given where we are, but could we create a virus that we could deploy to fight other bad viruses? You know, if it's the case that we ourselves are just code, and that's one way to look at it, then isn't biology the most important technology platform of the 21st century? And if that's the case, we are going to need people with hybrid skill sets to do something about it. So computational biology, computational pharmacology, you know, people who can do both machine learning and wet bench style research. You know, I mean, we're actually going to need lots of sort of hybrid trained students. And if we're really just constantly trying to respond to the huge number of job openings in very particular fields from yesterday or today, we're going to miss what's coming tomorrow. And now I sort of found this the other day. I was poking around on the internet archive, which has full scanned copies of magazines going back decades. So I was looking at some old issues of Byte Magazine and Popular Mechanics. I found a story from the 50s about how we just didn't have enough engineers, computer engineers. And if we could just have more computer engineers. And it was, I mean, aside from the silly sort of 1950s style graphic and some of the language, that, is, that story could run easily today because it's the same story. We've never had enough. Yeah, no. You know what I mean? So yeah, can't no, we anticipate, rather than just trying to play catch up, can't we play catch up while also anticipating what's next? Yeah, and I, you're right. It did start back in the 50s with Sputnik. We got scared and we, all right, we've got to get serious about science education. And we've been on that path ever since. And I think it's draining it's draining the life out of education. If it hasn't already drained the life out of education, I think that just on human terms, we're really we're really depriving ourselves of most of our heritage in the process. That might help to inform our decision making around, you know, not just can we do it, but should we do it when it comes to technology. So I wanted to have us close out because you've referenced it several times. Is all anybody's thinking about right now the COVID crisis. You've talked a little bit about how technology is being brought to bear on that, but you spent a lot of time in the book sort of outlining scenarios for the future of AI, you know, an optimistic one, a a pragmatic one, and then a sort of a catastrophic one where we really lose, we, the United States, really lose control over all of this and, and find ourselves kind of subordinated to the technology and to kind of outside political influence and control. But, of course, this book was probably, what, written two and a half years ago now, when you were were writing that anyway. And then we've had this situation with COVID come up. It's got huge implications. Came out of China. has huge implications for our relationship with China. It's already affecting the AI race. One of the main things as a futurist, not necessarily as a technologist, 
but just generally, how is this reshaping your thinking? Two things. First of all, it was not unexpected. So we are at work, we're constantly tracking longitudinal trends, things that happen over longer periods of time. And we have signal data where we're always considering plausible next order impacts. Pandemics are always a part of that work. They are outliers, but they're always a part of it. So they were, you know, they're not in the book. But now, that being said, I should maybe say now that I'm politically independent. This has unfortunately, I think, gotten us closer to that catastrophic framing. What I was trying to warn against in the tradition of Herman Kahn, you know, I was trying to help everybody imagine the unimaginable so that we could take meaningful action today. I see this virus as having accelerated us to the both the pragmatic and the catastrophic framings for a couple of reasons. One, I believe that public-private partnerships are very, very important. I do not think that the federal government should be single-handedly in charge of all testing and all data management, you know, all, all of the stuff that would be required for us to track and trace what's happening with the virus. That being said, we've essentially ceded all of it to the private sector. And the private sector may be faster in developing data tracing tools and automation and, and all the rest. However, what's going to wind up happening is that you know, we live in a litigious society. So if there is not a strong public-private partnership in advance, and in cases where the federal government seeds, you know, seeds everything to the private sector, we wind up with elected officials trying to regulate after the fact. And regulating after the fact or a litigious situation after the fact is a good way to stifle innovation in a really horrible way. So what I see starting to happen is you know, we are increasingly willing to give up personal privacy for the sake of trying to kickstart the economy. And the thing is, I don't think that one causes the other. We are going to wind up in a situation where we sort of advance the big tech companies doing more home-based diagnostics, doing more health tech, doing more healthcare. And at some point, the whole thing will circle back around to there's been too much consolidation, there's not enough competition, and now there's going to be tons of federal scrutiny as a result. At the same time that we are contending with a global virus and China has exerted significant dominance. I mean, the only way to look at the situation that we're in right now is before the virus, the United States had retreated from the world stage. Since the virus has happened, we have done that and also made ourselves look foolish, foolish and capricious, and unable to manage a national crisis. And that has happened at the same time that China is starting to triangulate and make different decisions. So, you know, China has been actively releasing propaganda, really making fun of the United States, the Trump administration, and just our, our ability to handle the crisis. And it's janky, silly digital propaganda, but, you know, that kind of thing has a compounding effect. And over time, it starts to change people's minds. The Belt and Road Initiative is still very much active and alive. And, you know, China has been helping others with the crisis, with, with data collection and tracking people's temperatures and, and things like that. And all of this is part of the, was sort of alluded to in the catastrophic framing. Well, let me push back just a little bit. I think that the Chinese, we, we do look foolish and inept and incapable of organizing ourselves. And that's going to become more evident over time. New estimates out today that by June 1st, we'll have 200,000 new infections a day in the United States. 
we look really, really bad. I agree with that. I think the Chinese look really bad too. For sure. Uh, in, in terms of the, they're lying about the virus, they're covering up their own really clumsy effort, diplomatic efforts, I think, at trying to exploit the crisis, I think, look silly in their own way. And I'm wondering whether, just to put some light at the end of this tunnel, I mean, assuming a future in which we have a change of administration, which I don't think is hard to envision at this point, and we've got a certain amount of disengagement in our relationship with China now, is this a chance to rebuild the some of the relationships and institutions that we relied upon for the post-war era to sort of solidify the Western value set that might guide development of, of artificial intelligence and some of the other technologies? Well, I agree with you. That'd be a wonderful outcome. <laughs> I think the problem is... Right. We have a crushing amount of uncertainty when it comes to everything from the election to whether or not China decides to exert more military, you know, shows of power, you know, to any host of other, other things. The challenge is, even if we have a change in administration, it still takes time to rebuild those relationships. You know, China screwing up in a catastrophic way, the management of this virus and some of what it's been doing with regard to the supply chain, importing a bunch of PPE, while at the same time creating a stockpile and not exporting it so that other countries with orders in you know, could, could use that stuff. I think a lot of leaders, business leaders, government leaders kind of expected that out of China. I think the challenge is that nobody expects America to screw up the way that it did. And if America yeah. has screwed up this catastrophically bad, I mean, it's, it's real bad, right? I think the problem is scale. And it's not like there was one bad mistake made. It's not just a lack of strong, decisive leadership from the White House. We have a lot of states that have screwed this up. We have a lot of local city officials that have screwed this up. But the problem is that the, the way that this has unfolded in the United States is so far off of what one would expect the United States to have done we should have had a better handle on this. And I think that is what's going to be difficult to overcome in the longer term is to build, rebuild that confidence. If I can just make one quick economics analogy, part of the reason that our markets have been so strong, had been so strong for so long was just confidence. The problem is we now have this lack of confidence. We have a lack of confidence in our federal leaders. There's been so much volatility all over the place. I think there's a lack of confidence in what the market, how the market should behave relative to how it is behaving. There's a lack of confidence in the might and wherewithal of certain industry segments. You even have, you know, CEOs who are behaving in like weird ways. I mean, Elon Musk just a couple of days ago said that Tesla's, you know, stock price was like way overvalued. It was too high and he lost like $10 billion. For shareholders, you know, like, like, so I, I think we have this, this crisis of confidence that is going to take a long time to overcome. That is not me being a dystopian thinker. It's me being pragmatic. But if we can recognize that now as a longer term existential risk, then the opportunity is for us, you know, there's, then there's opportunity. We know where the work is that needs to be done. You know, outside of this virus, outside of AI, there's like the rest of the economy and business and governing and everything else. So if we can sort of 
align ourselves in the same direction, which I realize is hard where we are right now, but if we could do that, then I think we, we march ahead to a better future. Possibly three to five years from now, one that is better than the pre-COVID virus world that we were currently living in. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it because that's the future that hasn't been written yet. As you correctly pointed out to us at the beginning, it's fluid and it's indeterminate what's going to happen. It's a, it's a mix of risks and opportunities. I happen to be a little more, I guess I'm naturally a pessimist until I meet a real pessimist. And then I react by being a little more optimistic. And I am a little bit more optimistic in this conversation, just because I see some things going on in society that offer encouragement to me. Americans have a history of throwing up leadership, great leadership during times of crisis. And I think we've We've seen really bad leadership. We've also seen some exceptionally good leadership and farsightedness going on, especially at the level of our, our governors, which is sort of the farm team for the White House. So I'm a little more hopeful that we can figure some of this out. Amy, thank you so much for being on. You've been very generous with your time. Highly recommend the book, The Big Nine, which you can get on Amazon. You might not get it two-day delivery, but you'll get it delivered. And I look forward to continuing to follow your work in the future. So thanks again for joining me. Thank you very much. It was a good conversation. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well it feels like you're hardly working.